Welcome to Global Health and Childhood Cancer. I'm your host, Mark Zobeck. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. As of this recording, I got back a little over a week ago from the SIOP Annual Congress in Lyon, France, and it was a fantastic meeting. It was also very tiring. Oh my goodness, I feel like I'm just going at double speed the entire time. I think it's going to be a break, but it turns out to just be a lot of work just in a different location. So, uh, But it was a great meeting, and I actually got to meet some of you listeners. So if you flagged me down and said hello, I appreciate it. It was very nice to meet you. So it was overall a very good time. And if you have not ever been to a PSYOP meeting, then I would highly encourage you to try to go next year for 2020 in October. It will be in Ottawa, Canada. So today we are going to do something a little different. It will just be me talking. I'm going to do a summary of sorts of some recent episodes that all painted a very similar picture to highlight some very important information that we heard. Specifically, I will be covering the information in episodes 12, 14, and 16. But this is designed to be a standalone podcast, so you should be able to pick up all the information here. But if you are interested and want more information, then you can go check out those other episodes. So we'll see how this goes. I'm experimenting with different forms of communication. So I'm interested to see how this is received. If you have thoughts, actually, I would welcome your feedback. You can email me at info at ghccpod.com with your questions or comments. But yeah, to go along with this podcast, I wrote a visual essay, which means there are graphs and different visual depictions of data to go along with what I will be explaining. So if you're interested in seeing the visual components, then you can go to the website ghccpod.com and find the link for episode 17, or you can click the link in your show descriptions in your podcast player. And lastly, I want to say that I'm going to try to raise the visibility of this podcast so that more people can find it and hear the information and get involved in the field. To do that, I actually need your help. If you would, you can go wherever you find your podcasts and rate this show if you could leave a five-star rating. And you can also leave a review. Both of these things are easy ways to help raise the visibility of the podcast within the search algorithms of the podcast stores, and that way more people will be able to see it. So thank you if you are willing to do that. Okay, I think that's enough introduction. Let's go ahead and get to the episode. Have you ever completed a very difficult puzzle? Perhaps it was thousands of small pieces with colors that blend together so that most of the pieces appeared very similar. Do you remember the overwhelmed feeling you had when you first dumped the pieces onto the table? Good grief, you may have thought. This puzzle is impossible. But after the moment of defeat, you look at the picture on the box and you see what the puzzle could be. Perhaps it will be an amazing waterfall or a city illuminated at night or a basket full of kittens. And you know that at the end of all your hard work, the pieces will come together and the picture will be complete. So thinking of that future day when you will feel the satisfying snap of the last piece falling into place, you sit down and you get to work. For many people, global pediatric oncology, which we'll call GPO, is like a giant, overwhelming puzzle. The complexity of the problem and the way the pieces are scattered 
may leave one feeling lost as to how to even begin. However, despite its difficulty, there's a community of dedicated doctors, nurses, cancer survivors, parents, politicians, and many, many other people who have been working hard to solve this puzzle. Over the last three decades, this community has made considerable progress toward understanding the necessary conditions for successful treatment of childhood cancer anywhere in the world. And now, new research has completely changed the perception of childhood cancer as a global health concern. As a result of this new information, the shape of the puzzle is changing. Whereas before, many pieces had been put together, but there was no structure that unified the whole, now most of the pieces are in place, and the outline of the puzzle can be seen in its entirety. The edges have given the puzzle a definite structure, which helps the global oncology community understand both how the different completed parts sit in relation to each other and what important information is still missing. So in a series of essays, I want to present to you a broad understanding of what I'm calling the edges of the GPO puzzle, the Global Pediatric Oncology Puzzle. These edges are those essential concepts without which one cannot fully understand pediatric oncology as a global health concern. Concretely, we will review the emerging research that clarifies the magnitude of the problem of childhood cancer, demonstrates effective solutions exist that can save lives today, quantifies the costs associated with treatment, and charts a clear path forward. To discuss the first edge, we will directly address the question, what is the global burden of pediatric cancer? Much of the information in these essays will not be new to people who are involved in the field. Even if he or she hasn't read the research, much of what I'm going to say is in line with the experience and intuition of the GPO community. If you consider yourself in this group, my hope is that you take from these essays a distilled set of concepts that can serve as visual and viral representations of the field, which you can use to communicate its importance to others. As for the interested but unfamiliar listener, this information may be surprising. When one sits down at the table to work on the puzzle and looks at the chaos of the scattered pieces, it's easy to be overwhelmed. This feeling may even be accompanied by belief in the futility of completing the puzzle. I have certainly had the thought that the goal of successfully treating children with cancer anywhere in the world is too complex, too big, and too expensive. It also may be hard to see how you can contribute to completing the puzzle. Being overwhelmed at the problem is understandable, which is why I hope to demonstrate that significant progress has already been made and more lives can be saved through the GPO community's tireless efforts in caring for kids. And this is an effort in which you or anyone else can take part. So, that is the setup for this essay and future essays. But with that said, let's go ahead and tackle the first edge, and I will address the rest of the edges in the future. Edge number one, the global burden of pediatric cancer. No one would deny that childhood cancer is a terrible disease, and people broadly agree that it is horrible that children have to endure it. However, it is also a rare disease, and one may justly wonder how big of a problem it is compared to the many other concerning diseases and conditions that confront the global health community. This is a reasonable question that serves as a starting place for constructing a more complete picture of global pediatric oncology. In this podcast, and in the visual essay that will accompany it, which you can find on ghccpod.com, 
we are going to answer the question, what is the total burden of disease due to pediatric cancer? And recent research has provided a striking answer to this question, which is, spoiler alert, it's a whole lot more than we previously thought. I'll explain what this surprising answer means in a minute, but first, let me explain why this question is very difficult to answer and why the global cancer community's understanding of disease burden is changing. So first, we have to ask, how do you measure cancer burden? So how do we answer this question? Should we count the total number of kids diagnosed with cancer who are alive in the world right now? Or maybe we should only count new cases this year. Maybe we should look at the total number of deaths due to cancer this year. But what about the kids who develop cancer but are never diagnosed? How do we measure those cases if we can't count them directly? Also, cancer causes much more suffering than just loss of life. Is there a way to factor in the amount of suffering when trying to quantify the burden of disease? You can see from these questions that the first thing researchers must do is to decide what aspect of cancer burden is worth measuring. And these questions are very difficult for researchers to answer for a single country, and they are even more complex when considering the entire world. To answer these questions correctly, researchers require a large amount of information. It would be nice if complete data about the number of cancer diagnoses or deaths due to cancer were available, but the unfortunate truth is that there are many holes in the available data. Comprehensive data collection requires a large and expensive system, and there are many countries that are limited in their ability to start and maintain one. Other countries track cases diagnosed at different hospitals, but they do not count every hospital and every patient in the country, so their numbers are also incomplete. To make things even more complicated, researchers know that many cases around the world are not even diagnosed. And if they are to produce reliable numbers about the amount of pediatric cancer in the world, then they must be able to measure the cases they know are happening but are never identified. From these problems, you can see that there are two big reasons why quantifying cancer burden is hard to do. Number one is we could measure it in different ways, and that actually means different things. And number two, we are missing much of the information we need to make good measurements. And because of these difficulties, estimates of the total burden of childhood cancer have changed over the years. The GPO community has worked hard to improve their methods, and now we have numbers that tell a surprising story. So what is the total burden of disease due to pediatric cancer? As I said above, the answer from our estimates is <laughs> there's a whole lot more cancer than we previously thought. And let me explain what has changed and why this is so surprising. So let's talk about the total number of new cases every year. Due to the limitations in measuring cancer burden previously described, the best estimates for how many children from the age of 0 to 14 developed cancer each year was around 200,000. The technical term for this measure is called incident cases. However, recently, researchers developed a new method to estimate incident cases and reported that they estimated there are in fact around 400,000 cases of childhood cancer that develop every year. In other words, the previous estimates were half as much as what the newer estimate shows. And if you go to the website and you click on the link for this episode, I have a series of graphs that explain these numbers that I will be discussing. So you can go see the graphs and see the data for yourself. So why are the numbers so different? Part of the reason is the way the researchers calculated the number of cases for countries with missing data 
by comparing them to the number of cases for countries with really good data, and they compared them in different ways than previous estimates. Also, with the newer methods, researchers were able to better account for the patients who developed cancer but were never diagnosed. The researchers found that about 175,000 kids with cancer are not diagnosed every year. This means that they develop cancer, but either they never seek medical care or the fact that they have cancer is never recognized by healthcare personnel. Another way to look at this number is that more than four out of every 10 kids with cancer in the world are never even diagnosed. So these numbers summarize what we know about the number of new cases per year for the entire world. We can say that the average proportion of kids who are not diagnosed is four out of 10. However, the actual proportion of kids who are not diagnosed in a specific country or specific region can be very, very different. For example, the researchers estimated that in Western Africa, 57% of cases, which is almost six out of every 10 children with cancer, were never diagnosed. And in South Asia, it was five out of every 10. So again, if you go to the page on ghccpod.com where I've posted this visual essay, you can see a figure of how the different regions compare in terms of non-diagnosis rates. So as the researchers looked at the trends and proportion of kids who are diagnosed across countries, they noticed that the countries that are more economically challenged, which are labeled as low-income or middle-income countries, LMICs for short, they tend to have higher proportions of kids with cancer who are not diagnosed. This is an incredibly important fact because nine out of every 10 kids with cancer in the world live in these countries. They live in LMICs. So putting these pieces of evidence together, we can say that the vast majority of children who develop cancer live in countries where they have a high chance of never even being diagnosed. The researchers of this paper didn't stop with these estimates. They calculate that if the rate for non-diagnosis does not change between 2015 and 2030, then about 3 million children will not receive a diagnosis for their life-threatening disease. 3 million children. Most of these children have a disease that is potentially curable, but they will never have the opportunity to receive treatment. They will never have the chance to live a long, healthy life, and they will never even know what was breaking their bodies. This is a daily average of around 550 non-diagnosed kids with cancer. So to put that in perspective, if an average school bus holds about 55 kids, at least here in the United States, then this number is the rough equivalent of 10 school buses filled with children driving away and disappearing every single day for 15 years. It's just the number of non-diagnosed cases, if these numbers are right. Just stunning. So before we move on, we are going to talk about cancer survival estimates. There is an important note that I need to insert here. Is that, as I said, these numbers are new, and these numbers are based on different methodology than what was done previously. But these numbers, like the previous numbers, are estimates, which means that there's a degree of uncertainty within them. The fact of the matter is that the lack of reliable data, it leaves a lot of questions. For instance, only about 5% of kids in Africa live in countries where the number of cancer cases per year is actually counted in some comprehensive way. Only 5%. 
So how do we decide about the remaining 95% of kids who do not live in countries where cancer cases are counted? The research that I'm discussing today has a specific modeling strategy to answer that question, but it's not the only way. So if you want alternative methodologies that give slightly different numbers, then you can go to the website and I will have links to other estimates of global burden of disease, such as the International Incidence of Childhood Cancer 3 study, which I will, I will have a link to on the website. But for the purposes of this podcast, it's sufficient to acknowledge that these differences exist and that there's differences of opinions, but it's worth still exploring the way that these new numbers paint a picture of the childhood cancer landscape. So with that said, let's now talk about the probability of surviving cancer. So the researchers we've been discussing did not stop at estimating incident cases and non-diagnosed cases. They also estimated the chance a child has of surviving their cancer after being diagnosed. So using methods similar to how they estimated new cases, the researchers reported that 37% of all patients with cancer survive for five years after diagnosis. And it needs to be said, there's nothing really magical about five years after diagnosis. It's just a convenient endpoint that we, um, as an oncology community, tend to use to quantify or to measure how long people are surviving. So 37% of all patients everywhere in the world survive their cancer. So again, we could say with some rounding that on average, around the world, only four in 10 kids survive their cancer. So like the incident cases, this estimate is actually very different in different parts of the world, except the variability of survival estimates is even larger than the incidence estimates. For instance, the five-year survival percentage in a high-income country like North America is 83%, which is unbelievable news. More than 8 in 10 kids survive their cancer in a high-income country. But in an economically challenged region like Eastern Africa, only 8% of all patients survive. So that is less than 1 in 10 kids with cancer survive for more than 8 in 10 in high-income countries. So looking broadly across all countries, the trend that emerges from the data is that kids in LMICs have a much, much lower chance of surviving their disease. So again, if you go to the website, I have a figure that will demonstrate the differences in survival and the differences in mortality or of not surviving your disease in different regions of the world. So if these numbers were not depressing enough, there's actually a twist to the story. These survival estimates are only for patients who are diagnosed with cancer. Now, remember earlier, we said that 4 in 10 patients, on average, are not even diagnosed, and that most of those patients who are not diagnosed live in LMICs, where their survival is worse. The patients who are not diagnosed were not factored into the survival estimates I just mentioned. So to get the true survival, we would have to consider what happens to the patients who are not diagnosed and the patients who are diagnosed and treated. So let me give a very crude example of how we might combine these numbers. So it is safe to assume that most patients who are not diagnosed will die from their disease. But to be conservative and factor in some uncertainty in the estimates, let us put the number of patients who are not diagnosed but to survive their disease at 10%. So suppose there's a country, let's call it country A. Country A demonstrates a five-year survival of 50% for cancer X. Let's just say cancer X. but only 50% of the kids who develop the disease are diagnosed. So if you work out the math, which I'm not going to do here, but the number comes out to an estimated 
30% survival if you factor in the non-diagnosed cases. So even though the number of kids with cancer X who are treated is 50%, if you factor in the non-diagnosed cases, that number falls all the way down to only 30% surviving. So the specifics of the math aren't important. But what is important is that factoring in non-diagnosis drops the survival rate by a large amount. And unfortunately, since patients in LMIC are both less likely to be diagnosed and less likely to survive, looking at the data in this way worsens the numbers in LMICs much more than in high-income countries, HICs. So again, I have a graph that demonstrates this disparity. So I need to put in an important technical note here that it bears repeating that the calculations that I just did They're very imprecise, and there is a lot of unaccounted-for uncertainty that makes them more difficult to combine than the way I just did. So this is just a rough representation of what happens when you factor in non-diagnosis, but is not actually the technically sound way to combine the numbers. So that is just an important note. Okay, but if that discussion wasn't enough, there is actually a further twist to the story. The estimates for both incidence and survival that we have been discussing are only for patients ages 0 to 14 years old. And we should keep in mind that many 15 to 19-year-olds that develop cancer are actually considered to be pediatric patients that pediatric oncologists will treat. At least, that's the way it is here in the United States and many other parts of the world. And there is even a name for a unique category of patients that includes this age group that's called adolescent and young adults. We won't go into detail about this age group because, well, there's just not as much reliable information available. But it's important to know that these patients are not included in the above discussion, and the true number of pediatric patients is higher still as a result. So as you can see, the global pediatric oncology community has come a long way in quantifying the incident cancer cases and five-year survival, and the story that the numbers tell is grim. However, there is another part of the story that needs to be told, that of measuring disease burden from the perspective of the suffering it causes and the years of life it steals from its victims. So let's talk about measuring the health consequences of cancer. Let's think for a minute what the measures that we've discussed so far have told us. Incident cases tell us about the number of new cases that occur in the world in a given time frame. And survival tells us the final outcome for someone who is diagnosed with cancer. You can think of these measures as roughly telling us about the beginning and the end of the cancer journey, but there are many things that happen between these two points that are worth measuring, particularly the suffering and loss of well-being that result from cancer. Now, you may be wondering, how in the world do we measure loss of well-being? Loss compared to what? It's a good question. The answer is that researchers measure loss of well-being against the expected level of health for a patient if they had never developed cancer. So let me give you an example to try to help make this make sense. Suppose there is a restaurant with 100 people eating in it. And suppose most of the people are having a lovely time drinking and chatting with friends. However, 10 unlucky people order the chicken special for that night and it was completely undercooked by the chef and they immediately get horrible, horrible food poisoning. If we were interested in quantifying the burden of food poisoning in our 100 patrons of the restaurant, we could say that the number of incident cases was 10 cases per night at the restaurant, for one night. And also, 
for the sake of example, suppose tragically that two people out of the ten die from their food poisoning, but the rest survive and completely recover. Let's suppose that both die in the first month, and then we can say that the one-month survival of this terrible food poisoning is 8 in 10, or 80%. These numbers give us a good snapshot of the situation, but there is still something missing. If you've ever had food poisoning, then you know that there's much more to the experience than these numbers describe. The illness can bring terrible stomach pains, vomiting, and other messy symptoms we won't go into. The suffering from it can be intense and may last a few hours to weeks. Suppose you were one of those people who got food poisoning at the restaurant and then recovered. And if someone described the impact of the disease as 10 people got sick that night and two died, you would think that that does not completely describe the experience of what it was like to be sick for you or for anybody else. To better capture the experience of the illness, the suffering it causes seems like an important part to describe. So to measure this experience, researchers have developed a tool called the Disability Adjusted Life Year, which is DALI for short. DALI's quantify suffering along two dimensions, the loss of well-being for patients living with a disease and the years of life lost for patients who die from it. Let's take these one at a time. To measure loss of well-being, which technically they call it years lived with disability, the researchers have to first decide what is normal well-being. They can make the assumption that, roughly speaking, people who never developed the disease and have similar health to the patient before the patient was diagnosed with the disease, these people can act as good points of reference for the health the patient would have experienced if they had never developed the disease in the first place. So then they measure the actual health of the patient with the disease against these healthy people who are like the patient but never developed the disease. And you can hear there are many conditional assumptions in this concept, which makes it kind of confusing. We can simplify it to say that researchers measure the difference in health between people without the disease and a person with a disease. And how do you put a measure on the health state of a person with a disease? The most common way researchers do this is they ask a bunch of people to rate different states of health relative to full health. And then they decide on an average, quote unquote, value of the diseased health state relative to the healthy. Then researchers subtract the quote-unquote value of the health state of a person with the disease from the value of full health over time to calculate an estimate of loss of well-being. Measuring years of life lost is a little more straightforward. Researchers can say that the life expectancy or the average lifespan for a bunch of people similar to the patient but who don't have the disease That is the life expectancy of the patient if they had never developed the disease. So then researchers can take the life expectancy and subtract the age at which a patient dies from their disease and say that that is an estimate of the years of life that were lost, that were never lived because of the disease. So if this was a little confusing to listen to, which I imagine it could have been, I do have a figure on the website and some further explanation that helps to try to make dallies make a little more sense. So go to the website ghccpod.com and check that out if you want to learn more. So now we've discussed how to measure dallies. Then the next question is, what are they used for? So dallies allow for two important comparisons. The first is that they allow researchers to measure the consequences of a disease relative to where it occurs in a lifespan. 
the years of life lost for a person who is 100 years old and develops cancer compared to a person who is five years old are very, very different. And DALIs give researchers a way to put a number on that difference. The second thing DALIs allow is the comparison of very different diseases. With DALIs, we can think about questions such as how do the health consequences of a common cold compare to cancer? So colds are very, very common, and they're somewhat uncomfortable, and most of the time it gets better on its own. Cancer is the exact opposite. And so if we wanted to, we could calculate DALIs for each, for the common cold and for cancer, which would allow us to compare the health consequences and the burden of these two very, very different diseases. However, it's important to point out that DALIs are a very rough estimate of the experience of having a disease. They give researchers a way to put a number to this experience so they can track it over time and compare it across other diseases. What DALIs are not, and this is so important to say, what DALIs are not is an actual statement about what living with cancer or any other disease is really like. We could write a 10,000-page novel to try to convey the true experience of just one child with cancer, and we would still not completely capture the truth. The experience of living with cancer is a profound trial that children and adults have to endure, and no researcher wants to cheapen that. DALIs are imperfect tools used by limited humans to try to measure an experience that defies description for the sake of helping those who are experiencing it. Furthermore, there are also well-known critiques of DALIs and what they do and do not measure, and I link to some of those critiques on the website. And these critiques are worth exploring because they help us better understand both what specifically DALIs are measuring and what are their limits. So go to the website if you want to learn more. So, with that said, let us now turn to measuring the burden of childhood cancer using DALIs. A group of researchers recently published the most comprehensive estimate of DALIs due to childhood cancer to date. The most important finding from this paper corrects a common wrong belief that goes, because childhood cancer is rare, its total burden is low compared to other diseases. The researchers reported that childhood cancer caused 11.5 million disability-adjusted life years in 2017. And while this single number may be difficult to interpret, compared to the other most common childhood diseases, childhood cancer ranked ninth globally. In upper-middle-income countries, it went all the way up to the third-largest cause of DALIs, falling only behind congenital birth defects and lower respiratory infections. And so I have a figure on the website of how these different causes of DALIs stacked up. They also compared DALIs to adult cancers and found that globally, childhood cancer ranks sixth among all types of cancers. And in low and low-middle income countries, it is ranked first. So although childhood cancer is less common compared to other diseases, the researchers demonstrated it is still responsible for a large amount of disease burden in the world. The researchers also looked at which groups of countries in the world are most responsible for the greatest number of DALIs. The researchers grouped countries by their Sustainable Development Index, which is also called an SDI, and it is a number that gives a rough estimate of a country's level of development. Consistent with the findings we've discussed so far, they found that the lower SDI countries are responsible for a large majority of the DALIs due to cancer. 
and looking at the trends in the SDIs, looking at the trends in DALIs across SDIs, we see that the regions in the world that are least prosperous are the ones that suffer the highest burden of disease, as we have seen with incident cases and with survival. So looking at global pediatric oncology through the lens of DALIs not only helps us better understand the magnitude of disease, but also informs discussions about how to set health priorities. The sad reality is that we live in a world of limited time, money, and resources. And because of these limitations, health officials, politicians, and other people who set healthcare policies in a country have to make really hard decisions about where to focus their efforts and resources. If decision makers do not have comprehensive information about the burden of disease in their country, then they will not be able to make the best decision that will benefit the most people. And as we have seen, comparisons of DALIs across diseases are a necessary measure to inform compassionate decisions. A good example of this situation would be a health planner in, say, an upper-middle-income country that may need to decide whether to buy more cancer medicines or tuberculosis medicines for pediatric patients. According to the DALI estimates, for the average upper-middle-income country, pediatric cancer is the third-largest source of DALIs, and tuberculosis is the 59th. This seems like an important piece of information for the health planner to know when making this decision. But I'm certainly not saying that this is the only component to the decision. She will also need to consider costs, implementation, feasibility, social context, and a host of other factors that are not mentioned here. But what I am saying is that making the best decision that does the greatest amount of good is extremely difficult and can only be done when comprehensive information about the burden of disease is available. So we spent time developing an intuition for what DALIs are because they are so important for understanding this edge of the global pediatric oncology puzzle. Although more rare than other diseases of childhood, cancer is responsible for enormous suffering due to how lethal it is for young patients and how debilitating it can be for those who survive. DALIs can help us to describe what should be the case that in 2017, there should have been 11.5 million healthy life years lived that were not. Understanding what the world would look like if every child with cancer receives optimal care helps put the tragedy of global pediatric oncology in a new perspective that better conveys the magnitude of the problem compared to only looking at the total number of new cases or deaths per year. And lastly, DALIs are helpful to understand because they play an important role in health policy and allow people who have to make really hard decisions to be well-informed. Anyone interested in addressing this problem through advocacy and health policy need to be comfortable with these concepts so they can speak the same language as the decision makers they seek to impact. Okay, we've come a long way, so let me give a summary of edge number one, the global burden of childhood cancer. We saw in the discussion that LMICs suffer the most from pediatric cancer, which is where 90% of the children with cancer live. We estimated that global cancer cases are much, much more common than was previously thought, with around 400,000 new cases of pediatric cancer per year. We also identified the ongoing catastrophe of non-diagnosis, which results in around 43% of kids with cancer or 175,000 children never being diagnosed per year. 
And if things do not change in the next 15 years, 3 million children with cancer will never be diagnosed, nor have a chance at cure, which, as we said, is the equivalent of 10 school buses of children disappearing every single day for the next 15 years. We also saw that the average five-year survival around the world is 37%, but this ranges between 8% and 83%, with the vast majority of low survival rates in low- and middle-income countries. And the picture only worsens when we add in patients who are not diagnosed and the teenage, adolescent, and young adult patients. Then we saw that measuring DALIs due to cancer demonstrates that global pediatric oncology sits among the top sources of ill health in the world, ranking number nine globally for all pediatric diseases, and number three for all pediatric diseases in middle-income countries, and number six globally when compared to adult cancers. So I have a summary table of these numbers if you want to go and review them yourself. Again, you can go to the website and check that out. So thanks to the hard work of the people in the global pediatric oncology community, we have a clear picture of the magnitude of the burden of childhood cancer. Fitting these pieces together has shown the world that the suffering due to childhood cancer is enormous and needs to be addressed now. So this exploration of the burden of disease is the first edge in the childhood cancer puzzle. Now that we have an increasingly clear picture of how much cancer there is and the suffering it causes, the next question is what do we do about it? It is natural to feel saddened and overwhelmed by these numbers, and it may seem as though the problem is too big to be fixed. But I have good news. For the last three decades, the global pediatric oncology community has been demonstrating that we can improve care. And we now know the right intervention can significantly improve survival in a short period of time. Answers already exist. It's just a matter of putting the puzzle pieces together. So how to improve outcomes is the second edge to the puzzle and will be the next topic of these oral and visual essays. So stay tuned. Thank you. (laughs) 